0: Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Kelly McQuarrie, and this is How It Is, the show where women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. Today, we're talking about unexpected encounters. Those chance meetings that end up changing our lives. You're a queen. What'd you say? Do you ever think about what would happen if you made a single decision differently or didn't meet that one person who is so important to you? The butterfly effect. For example, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go to college. I had a few great options, and honestly, I was looking for a sign. So I went to an admitted students weekend at Barnard and met this incredible girl who remains my best friend to this day and who I've been on many journeys with. You just never know how one single encounter in your life can completely change it. So when you really think about it, Mm -hmm. that is life. It is all of these unexpected encounters that change the course of things. You meet people and share experiences every day that might change your life in a big way or a small way. Today, we are exploring the whole spectrum of those changes with roller derby star Sarah McKemmy, writer Suleika Jawad, and Megan Phelps Roper, who left the Westboro Baptist Church, which she grew up in, after a few especially meaningful encounters. First up, Sarah McKemmy. Well, at least that's her name during the day. At night, she becomes Sexy Slady, the Gotham City All-Star's roller derby captain and blocker. She also plays for the roller derby U.S. national team.
1: Number 68, Sexy Slady, just a big, wonderful blocker who is just very graceful as well.
0: So for those of you who don't know, roller derby is a full-contact sport. It is one of the few that exist, and even fewer that exist for women. I wanted to know. What happens when your life revolves around doing the exact thing that we are taught from a very young age not to do? Physically smacking into other people at full speed. So the basics
2: of roller derby. So there's two teams, five skaters on each team on the track at a time, and we're skating counterclockwise in a circle. So one player from each team is a jammer, and the other four are blockers. And the object of the game is for the jammer to pass the hips of the opposing blockers. Each time she does that, she scores a point. And so it's exciting and mentally challenging, because if you're a blocker, you're always on offense and defense. So you're trying to distract the opposing blockers so they can't block your jammer. But you're also not letting the jammer pass you. So You're playing defense, too. And this is where I come in. (laughs) As a 21-year-old Sarah, I was confident but unsure of what I wanted to do. I kind of hadn't found my place yet, and I was really searching, I think, as a lot of people in college are doing so I had heard about roller derby from a friend who lived in Chicago, and the league there is called the Windy City Rollers. So I'd heard about it, but I kind of put the info to the side. I hadn't, I hadn't really investigated the sport. So I'm sitting at a bar with a friend, a classmate, and in skate, these two women, they look so cool. And so tough, and immediately it just—I was drawn to them, and I thought, "Who are they? They look so cool. Like, you know, what are they talking about? Who are they talking to?" So they're skating around the bar, handing out flyers, and um, talking to everybody about their upcoming game. It was a couple days away, and my interest was piqued at that point. It was some sort of sign, as these pe- women were literally skating into my life. <laughs> I knew I, at that point, I had to check it out. They had this confidence, you know, they roller skated into a bar. Who does that? (laughs) But they did it with this just confidence and this kind of like oozing this coolness. And they just went up to everybody at the bar and had, you know, and and were confidently talking about this game and nobody knew what they were talking about. Nobody had heard about the sport, but they... They just kind of exuded this kind of feeling that they were doing something really neat, and you might not know about it yet, but you're going to want to know about it. I had the flyer. I went to the game. And I think it might have even been the same person I was sitting at the bar with. We went to the game together, and I think I was just grabbing her leg the whole time during the game because I was watching and I was so excited, and I just pointed even, and I said... I want to do that. Like, I need to do that. (laughs) It was really the first time in my life that I'd had this experience where I saw something. I had no understanding about it, no skills. (laughs) And I just decided that I was going to do it. I was going to overcome whatever fear or whatever hurdle I needed to and just figure out how to do it. So hitting people, (laughs) hitting other skaters on the track is exhilarating. You just have this rush of adrenaline. I never thought I'd play a sport as an adult where I get to run into other adults at full speed at full force. And then on the flip side, when somebody bumps into me, you know, you're you experience that same rush of adrenaline and then, you know, you're you're bummed out because you want to get back up and get back into the play as soon as possible. But there's also this feeling that I get that I've never experienced in any other sport. It's totally unique to roller derby and that is like being a little stoked for the opposing blocker that hit you. You know, kudos to you for executing that hit really well. <laughs> we all have this thing in common and that's bravery. You know, we haven't been playing this sport since we were kids. We've we've learned it in our in a, in our adulthood. And we've all had to overcome, you know, the fear of learning how to roller skate, um, learning how to get hit on roller skates after that, and then also just learning something new. Once you overcome the fear of learning how to skate, learning the rules, learning how to get hit, um, you take pride in it. And... It's also connected to your body because like, your body is taking you there. It's your strength and your quickness that's getting you where you need to be on the track.
0: Make sure you come right back with us. That was the biggest jam we'd seen so far this game at 20 points. Fans, you've been watching the WFTDA International Championships on ESPN3.
2: The last year at the in the semifinal game of the championships, I was playing offense on a skater. Our bodies got twisted. I fell down and got kicked in the face by a skate, by accident, of course. But I, I heard something and it, it scared me a little bit. So, But I knew that we had it was the first half and it was like the first 10 minutes of the game. So um, I kind of just like got up and skated back to my bench, kind of held my nose and... <laughs> I thought, like, it's okay. You know, whatever it is, just my face, just my nose, like, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll get it taped up. And so we did. The medic came over, and I I had broken my nose. (laughs) And we just got it taped up, and I was able to play for the rest of the game. I got a helmet with a face shield. Derby has definitely influenced me to take initiative in my life. You know, at work, I'm more interested in if I don't know something to try to figure it out myself. It's taught me that it's less about what's given to you, but what you can get, what you can take for yourself, and what you can create in a meaningful way, how you can affect um, a community in a good way. I've taken something that's uh, sports, which has been something that I've, it's been a competitive thing for me my whole life. And it's really taught me how to be a member of a community in that sport and lifting up the women around me instead of trying to always win.
0: It's about more than that. Okay, sign me up. I never thought I'd say that about something that might cause me bodily harm, but that confidence that Sarah saw in the women who skated into her life, that sense of community, that sense of mutual benefit... She has that. She probably takes it to every part of her life, and we could all benefit from that. I want some of that, too, please. Also, Hearing Sarah's Stories has jump-started my newest hobby, which is fantasizing about my roller derby name. So the one that comes to mind first is obviously Kick-Ass Kelly. I mean, that's obvious. But, uh, you know, I think I'm more of like a slam-bam thank-you-ma'am or a sister-hack. Or uh, black dynamite, or um, you know, shouting at my hometown. I'd be a Milwaukee Bruiser, maybe some Milwaukee Brewer. I'll keep thinking about it. For our next storyteller, life for the past ten years has been only unexpected encounters. Sulika Jawad was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia at 23 years old. Then she spent the next three years battling the cancer that doctors said she only had a 32% chance of beating. During her time in the hospital, she began a New York Times column all about battling cancer as a young person. The column, Life Interrupted, resonated with people from around the world. When she was finished with treatment in 2014, she decided to go on a 100-day solo road trip across the country. The plan was to visit some of the people that wrote to her during her treatment, including her then-friend, now-partner, the musician John Batiste. What she found was that her journey was all about encountering and becoming reacquainted with herself. John and I met
1: at band camp when I was 13 and he was 15. And even then, at the kind of end of summer recital, I remember hearing him play and thinking, like, this guy has something really special. And back then, he was very different to how he is now. He had braces and was awkward and and shy. But I, yeah, I, I knew he was someone special. At the same time, you know, it's summer camp and you don't really expect that you'll necessarily see the kids you go to summer camp with again. But we ended up reconnecting a few years later at Juilliard, where he was a freshman, and I was in the pre-college program, and just kept orbiting in and out of each other's lives. I started Life Interrupted because as a 23-year-old who'd just gotten this terrifying diagnosis of leukemia, I found that I couldn't really relate to a lot of the books and, and blogs and things that were out there relating uh, to the experience of, of cancer and, and more broadly to this experience of having your life interrupted by something big and, and blinding at the time, I was at Mount Sinai Hospital, inpatient, where I'd been for about a month doing chemotherapy. And I got this call from John one day, who just found out that I was sick and asked if he could come visit me. And I said, yes. And to my surprise, he not only came, but he brought his whole band along with him and right there in my hospital room, he and and his band began to play for for me. There was John with his melodica, and Eddie the sax player, and a Bondo the tuba player, and Joe who brought along a tambourine, and they started to play. And as the sound of the music sifted out into the hallway, patients and doctors and nurses began to dance and to sing. And it was just one of the more extraordinary, joyous days I've had in the hospital. And it was just this exhale. And from that day forward, John was someone who kept showing up for me. I think people often say you find out who your real friends are, but I think for me that experience more than anything made me very clear on who it was I wanted to be closer with and John was one of those people. So, when you finish something like cancer treatment, everyone congratulates you on being done, but not only did I not feel done on that last day of treatment, I felt worse than I'd ever felt. It was this strange reckoning for me because for three and a half years of my life, the goal had been to get into remission. And I hadn't really considered what the aftermath of treatment might look like. When I was in the hospital and I was really struggling to figure out what to do with myself in those early weeks of treatment, my friends and family came up with this idea of a hundred day project. And the idea was that we would each do something creative every single day for a hundred days. And so after I was done with treatment and I was really struggling to find my way and to figure out who I was, I decided that I needed a new kind of 100 day project. And so I came up with this idea of a 100 day road trip. I decided that during those 100 days I was going to visit some of the unexpected strangers who had been writing to me over the last couple of years. I started in New York. The first 5 minutes of my road trip were a total nightmare. I ended up driving up Ninth Avenue and looking up and realizing that all of the traffic was coming towards me. I drove the wrong way up Ninth Avenue and, you know, did this insane U turn and swerved over to the side of the road and parked and had this kind of 10 minutes of. Talking to myself and feeling like this road trip was not only a terrible idea, but it was like an incredibly stupid one. But I was, you know, I was at a place in my life where I really was at a crossroads. It was one of those moments where, even though the prospect of driving, let alone driving alone in a car with my thoughts for a hundred days, uh, not only sounded scary, but like a maybe torturous form of self experimentation. And the idea of a journey and something that had forward-moving momentum in it was what I thought I needed. Driving is not something that you would think of as a physical sport, but as someone who had been bedridden, For pretty much three and a half years, I was surprised by how much stamina and endurance and focus these long drives would take. And there were, especially in those early weeks, so many days where after about two hours of driving, I'd pull over into a McDonald's parking lot and just nap. I didn't actually expect that driving would help me physically and that it would challenge my energy and and stamina and endurance in the way that it did. Towards the very end of my road trip, I drove through New Orleans where I spent Christmas with John and with his family. And at the time, we were still figuring out, you know, what this thing was that we had between us and I didn't really know what was going to happen in the future but the fact that this man this deeply kind and and patient and and loyal man had been there for me you know long before we were ever a couple and had loved me enough to give me the space and the time that I needed to go on this trip and to do the soul searching that I needed to do meant so much to me. And I think was my first indicator that this was someone who I could see myself being with and and trusting that, you know, no matter what happened, whether I was the one going through a hard time or he was the one going through the hard time, that He was willing to weather that. I think the road trip for me was really this affirmation of the power of story, not only to heal, but to connect people who might otherwise never meet or never think that they had anything in common or anything to say to each other. And so what happened during the road trip was that I not only fact-checked this narrative that I had about myself as someone who was weak and who was broken by this experience and who couldn't be alone and was able to kind of turn that around and to not only feel like I could be alone, but I could be alone for a 100 days and that I wasn't weak, but that I was someone who, you know, traveled alone, and went on adventures alone, and could do hard things alone.
0: Mm. I love that idea about fact-checking the narrative we have about ourselves. It is so important to keep doing this over and over again, because as we grow, we change. You know, as an actor and a public person, I have opened myself up to all kinds of scrutiny, especially online. I have gotten the... Just the worst of the worst. People calling me, all kinds of names and having all kinds of wild criticisms. And and the fact is that when you when you ask for attention by you know being on a social media platform, (laughs) you sometimes you just you're gonna get attention from trolls. Whether it's um, the storyline of my fictional character or the the causes that I care about or my my activities over the weekend, everything that I put out there is gonna be fodder for commentary and criticism. And it just makes me wonder, what would it be like to go public with something that is actually really, really high stakes? Our next storyteller, Megan Phelps Roper, knows all about hate mail, receiving it and sending it. From hate tweets to mean comments to protesting in real life, she actually could be called an expert on it. It was her entire life until she was 26. Megan grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church, which is considered one of the most active and rabid hate groups in America, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And this church? It was founded by her grandfather. And for a long time, Megan was their public face. So yeah, it's safe to say that Megan is familiar with hate mail, but it wasn't until she got a Twitter account that those hateful messages that she was sending began to be challenged. And it was one hacker that she interacted with on Twitter that really changed the course of her life. One of those life changes is Megan's newborn baby, who was just two weeks old when we recorded. So you'll get to hear her and Megan's story, too. Westboro Baptist
3: Church is a very small church that is comprised primarily of my immediate and extended family. It's about 80 people in total. And it was founded by my grandfather in 1955. In 1991, we started protesting. It started, you know, being being about, you know, these anti-gay protests and then very quickly expanded to be such that everyone outside of the church was a legitimate target for our message. So we protested schools and sporting events and concerts and, again, literally anywhere and, and anything where there were, you know, people gathered. So by the time... I joined Twitter in 2009. I was 23 at the time and had spent 18 years on the picket line, you know, learning Westboro's ideology and, you know, learning to defend it against all comers. And I believed with all my heart that we had the truth of God and that everyone else was essentially doomed to hell and that it was our job to go and warn them. At Westboro, we saw ourselves as a great publishing company. Like our job was not to convert people because we thought that was in God's hands alone. We just wanted to publish this message to as many people as we possibly could. And so from the very beginning of the church's ministry, this involved utilizing the, you know, you know, cutting-edge technology as, as best we could. So in the early 90s, this was fax machines. That my grandfather would literally cut and paste together the elements of a press release, including you know cartoons and and such, and and then use fax machines to fax it all over the country. For me, when I learned about Twitter, it would just seem like a natural extension of you know this this trend to use technology to the you know the best of our ability to publish this message because it was the most important thing in the world. In February of 2011. Westboro got a, we got a threat from Anonymous uh, saying that they were going to hack us. I can't remember what what all the threats were, um, but we responded, you know, publicly. And then Anonymous, you know, members, other people claiming to be members of Anonymous said, hey, that's not us, that's not a real threat, we don't care about you guys. And, you know, we basically kept up the antagonism on our side. And so what ended up happening was that my mom was on this, web show so half the screen is my mom sitting in our office and the other half of the screen is the skype profile picture of this guy whose code name is topiary and if i recall correctly his profile picture was batman wielding a lightsaber riding on the back of a shark or something and so during that interview topiary goes and and hacks Westboro's website. So when that video got posted shortly after the interview finished, it had several hundred thousand views within just a few hours, and it was getting so much attention. And, you know, we we made a press release, and I posted that press release, which called Anonymous a bunch of crybaby hackers. I posted that press release to my Twitter account, along with our message to Anonymous, which was, bring it, cowards. Topiary was on Twitter and so we traded insults and and sparred for a while there and we were both having a lot of fun with it. At one point he called me massively brainwashed. I cheekily asked him whether it was even possible for someone to be just a little bit brainwashed and part of the reason we were having so much fun was that there was a lot of people watching these exchanges and weighing in and commenting and it was very funny I remember thinking at the time because again we didn't care that they hacked our website. We didn't care that you know, they were saying all kinds of terrible things about us. We didn't care about any of that because, again, our, our only goal was to publish. And this was getting so much attention. And one person whose attention it got was this guy who contacted me on my Twitter profile, sent me a mean message. I responded with something about uh, how he needed to get his head out of the gutter. That guy ended up being my husband, eventually. So in the middle of my sparring with Jake on on Twitter, a few months later, he was no longer anonymous. He was no longer just known as Topiary because he was arrested and charged with several crimes. And it turned out that he was this uh, 19-year-old from the UK named Jake Davis. And, you know, he was eventually, you know, he was banned from the Internet for two years. I think he was banned from asking anybody to look anything up for him on the Internet for two years. And by the time he was out of that Internet jail, I had left Westboro. We got in touch afterward and started talking. And then eventually, you know, last year I was traveling through Europe and we met at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris And I thanked him so kindly for both him and his teenage shenanigans for introducing me to my husband. And now we're friends. (laughs) I think after I left Westboro, there was such a void in my life. My family, my entire community was gone. I basically found myself in, you know, the years following, just reaching out to every, every tiny connection I had to anybody, anywhere. There was just something about, you know, people that I had known while I was still part of Westboro. I loved meeting new people also, you know, people who had no idea about Westboro or anything about my past. It was also very meaningful to me to reconnect with people, to reconnect and I should say also apologize to a lot of people that I had said and done hurtful things to while I was part of Westboro. And it was enormously healing. When you're standing on a picket line, it's really difficult to get past the the talking points. You know, you're you're shouting what you think and it's not really about a conversation. It's really it's really just this sort of this back and forth. It's 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 a debate rather than a dialectic. And another thing about, you know, being in physical space with another person is that, you know, you learn to keep outsiders at arm's length. And having this, you know, digital platform, it sort of allowed me to to let people in and to come to know them in a much more personal way than I ever could at protests. And it's partly because I'm not just debating with them. I'm seeing them, you know, tweeting their friends and posting photos of their cats and posting photos of their children and things like that. So you're seeing all these different sides of people that I had never really seen before it just sort of let me see them as as human beings. I think in the middle of all that, and in the middle of these you know, more nuanced conversations, you know, some of the people that I encountered there were able to find inconsistencies in in our theology that I had never seen before. <laughs> when my husband and I talk about those early days, it's almost always with this total awe. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know what we'd be like sitting together on the couch or something and You know, my husband would look over at me and and say, like, how are you here or why are you here? Like, and how many times I'm sitting, you know, in our kitchen looking out the window at, you know, this tiny town in South Dakota and just floored that I'm not standing on a picket line in Topeka, Kansas, that I'm not still in the middle of all of that, you know, hostility. And even though it's been almost six years now since I left Westboro, it still floors me. You know, and and my husband, too. And now, you know, I have this little three-week-old baby. And I just feel like the longer we're together, the more unreal and surreal it feels. It's just, it just seems impossible. And I'm just so grateful. I could not be more grateful.
0: Her story such a good example of how unexpected encounters can challenge what we've always held to be absolutely true about the world. There is so much power in the messages we send out, and as we've just heard from Megan, there's actually a lot of room for nuance. Oh, speaking of journeys, this episode was a real journey. So in the meantime, I wanna know about your unexpected encounters. Did you bump into someone on the sidewalk that totally changed the course of your life? What's your butterfly effect moment? We're back next week to talk about escape. Escaping your former life, escaping reality. We've got it all covered. You'll hear from comedian Cristela Alonzo, who uses laughter as an escape from dark times. My mom passed away in 2002, and I remember the funeral. We could not stop laughing. Like, we all laughed because we were telling stories about her, and you would think that we were almost happy she was dead. You're a queen. You're a woman, You're it. Share with us on all social at Hello Sunshine with the hashtag HowItIs. And please subscribe to the show and give us a rating. It helps new people find our show and hear these stories. On this episode of How It Is, you heard from Sarah McKemmy, Suleika Jawad, and Megan Phelps Roper. I'm Kelly McCreary, and I am an actor, an activist, and a future roller derby star. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lehrer, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Kara Hart and Michelle Lands. Our development producer is Mary Phillips Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song Queen is written and performed by Victoria Canal. Oh. <laughs> I should talk to somebody about that. Maybe they'll let me. <laughs>